Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Well, in this evening's program, there's plenty of rational perspective. We are going to be revisiting the Steinhoff saga with Bernard Mostert. You might recall that he, together with Bram van Hastien, sold their business, Techie Town, into Steinhoff for 3.2 billion rand. Steinhoff paid them with Steinhoff shares, which were virtually worthless. Well, uh, on Friday, we had an improved offer from Steinhoff itself to try and settle all the fraudulent claims uh, with shareholders and those who it owes money to, including uh, Mr. Mostert and Van Hastien, but they're having absolutely nothing of it. He'll explain why in a little while. We'll also be talking with David Shapiro about uh, the events of the past week. David and I have been working together since 1997, and uh, we've certainly never seen anything like this in the time we've been working. He's very old. Uh, I think he's, well, I don't know, but very old. He's he's seen nothing like this in his lifetime either. Uh, We'll also be hearing from Charles Savage, uh, the chief executive of Purple Capital. Again, uh, looking back on the past week and answering a question from our community members, what happens if anarchy is to take over in South Africa? What happens to the money that I've invested in easy through easy equities in international investments, in uh, shares in uh, the United States and Australia? We'll also uh, hear from Treasury One and then a fabulous story. The city of Cape Town has been downgraded alongside other cities. And Ian Nielsen, the deputy executive mayor, says that's bunk. It shouldn't happen. And he explains exactly why. Interesting, the differentiation that we're seeing that is occurring more and more. But first, let's get into the news headlines. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Nadia Swart is uh, in the news booth today, as always. An uneasy calm prevailed across most of South Africa's KwaZulu Natal and Gauteng provinces as key roads reopened and cleanup operations began in earnest on Friday following some of the most violent protests the country has ever seen. At least 212 people died during a week of mayhem, hundreds of shops were looted, and key infrastructure was destroyed. The unrest was triggered by ex-president Jacob Zuma's incarceration on contempt of court charges and exploded as poor communities took to the streets in their thousands to vent their anger over appalling living conditions and a lack of jobs. The government has received reports of extensive damage being done to 161 malls, 11 warehouses, 8 factories and 161 liquor outlets and distributors. The week of deadly protests in South Africa has given impetus to proposals that the government pay out cash stipends to address the high levels of poverty and inequality that fueled the unrest. The basic income grant is being given serious consideration, President Ramaphosa said in an online lecture on Sunday. It is being discussed in the governing, governing party and at government level. Discussions, discussions about the aid are taking place as the Treasury and the Presidency consider a separate support package for businesses and individuals affected by the turmoil. The destruction may slow the nation's recovery from a 2020 economic downturn in South Africa, which has one of the most unequal societies in the world. Data published by the International Monetary Fund in 2020 showed that the top fifth of the population received more than 68% of income compared with 47% for an index of emerging markets. An investigation by The Guardian has revealed that Rees and Amir Kaji, the brothers who founded cryptocurrency investment scheme AfriCrypt, bought citizenship from the Pacific Island nation of Vanuatu. According to the report, the Kaji brothers are among more than 2,000 people who bought citizenship in 2020 using the country's controversial Golden Passport Scheme. A Vanuatu passport would give the brothers visa-free access to several countries, including the UK and European nations within the Schengen area. In June, the Kaji brothers made headlines following the news reports that they had absconded with cryptocurrency valued at over 51 billion rand. Before we go into the markets, uh, Justin, you were covering that Kaji brother story how old are the guys 21 and 18 
21 and 19 respectively, Alec. I know the initial estimates of 50 billion were, were way off the mark, but it certainly seems as though it's hundreds of millions of rands. The last I heard, it was around the 100 million rand mark. That's from the KG brothers themselves. The actual amount is unknown at this stage. Vanuatu, is that the way you pronounce it, Nadia? Yeah, I even checked. Is that out in the Pacific somewhere? Yeah, it's the Pacific or Island. It's obviously one of those very small havens. Which sells you golden visas that can get you visa-free access into the EU mm. and the UK. Wow. Yeah. Well, Justin, what about the markets today? Uh, the JSE All Share Index was down sharply to 64,800. In the currency markets, the rand was stronger against all the major currencies to 14 rand 48 to the dollar, 19 rand 84 to the pound, and 17 rand and six cents to the euro. Gold is down at $1,806 an ounce. Kruger Rand is trading at approximately 27,500 rand. Brent crude is lower, trading at $71.40 a barrel, and Bitcoin follows global markets lower at 444,000 rand per coin. In the financial news today, Woolworths Food continues to shine whilst its apparel and beauty business units continue to underperform, a recurring theme since the acquisition of David Jones, which has turned out to be nothing short of a disaster for the retailer. Revenues were up close to 10% in rand terms for the group, and the shares were slightly up as one of the best performing shares on the JSE Top 40 today. Shoppers rushing back to stores after the lifting of lockdown boosted European brands selling everything from watches to sneakers to handbags. Richmond, which is controlled by Han Rupert and was unbundled from the Rembrandt Group in 2006, reported a more than doubling in first quarter revenue, while sales at Burberry Group topped estimates. The result shows consumers are hungry for luxury goods as they emerge from the pandemic restrictions and vaccination campaigns accelerate. Richmond was down around 3% for the day on the JSC. Steinoff. Two weeks after a Cape High Court judgment that could deal a crippling blow to Steinoff's bid to settle with its former shareholders, the company has said that improved trading conditions enable it to increase its settlement offer to former shareholders by 66%. The proposed improved offer would increase the payout to so-called market purchase claimants from between $0.04 and $0.06 in the euro to between $0.06 and $0.10 in the euro. One shareholder who is backing a class action by Hamilton described the proposal as from, from less than nothing to a bit more than nothing. Steinoff shares were down around 5% on the day. This market report was made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. David Shapiro is our man on a Monday. Dave, there was a very late announcement to come from Steinhoff on Friday. Uh, there are many people interested in the goings-ons at Steinhoff. It appears as though the company is making a slightly better offer um, to shareholders. It, it had come out with an agreement to begin with. We're going to be talking with Bernard Mostert, who's, who's really on the sharp end of that offer. But when an announcement comes out late on a Friday afternoon, it's not usually good news. <laughs> Uh, in, in, well, for for Steinhoff, this seemed to be good news, but it's it's always you know very late in the afternoon. The shares did respond. The share price went up about eleven percent, but uh, saying that conditions have improved and therefore they're able to offer the claimants a lot more. Um, I'm surprised that against what Bernard says and against uh, what the high courts in the Cape decided, that uh, the market has brushed this aside. And, and, and that's why we're in the middle. We're saying, okay, if the, Cape, if the courts say one thing and the, uh, the other courts say another thing, who's, who's going to win this battle? Because I think shareholders are in the middle. Um, I'm on the side of Bernard because in the sense that um, you can't ride roughshod over kind of the Companies Act or over claimants, you know, in, in a broad type appeal. Each, you know, each there, there's so many elements to this whole claim. And, you know, that's why I'm so interested in see how, seeing how or hearing how Bernard is, you know, sees this going forward now. Well, that's a lovely uh, segue into our guest. Uh, mm. Bernard Mostert is uh, uh, the, well, he's owed a lot of money through the Techie Town mm. purchase by Steinhoff with what Bernard and, uh, and his partner, um, Bram say was with worthless paper. Bernard, what was the number? What, how much did they pay you for Techie Town? Yeah, Alec um, and, and David, thank you for your time, first of all. 
I think the first thing is that um, it's not that I'm owed a lot of money. I'm owed a business. So, um, you know, that's what we gave away and that's what we would like back. Um, but it's billions. Quantum, We're talking about billions of rent. The quantum of value that we delivered to within Steinoff um, and that was then structured into PEPCO on our side is about 1.85 billion rand. Um, total value of the business was 3.2 billion rand. Um, we accept that um, an exchange of shares for the business, shares that we couldn't sell. We did that for a very specific reason. And, um, you know, it's interesting to see this whole process unfold. And, um, you know, it's also interesting to see it in the context of the sad events that have happened in our country in the last week. Mm. So it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical on Steinhoff, but I'm optimistic on South Africa. Well, glad to hear that, and, and I'm sure we'll have a chance to have a chat about that in a moment as well. But as far as Steinhoff is concerned, there are three groups of creditors, three groups to whom something has to be paid. You're in one of those groups. There's also uh, a, a Christo Visa and Co., and then there is the financial Owners, and I got all of this uh, from Adams and Adams's uh, uh, Jacques Marais, who actually took me through the whole story. And David, at last, I understand exactly what's going on here. <laughs> Excepting that on Friday there was an adjustment to the offer, which up to this point, the shareholder group or Hamilton, as it's as it's known, uh, has been extremely resistant. Was there enough in the offer for the shareholder group to say, "Okay, we'll we'll accept it," or more importantly, for you to do that? Bernard, Alex, sorry, I thought I thought the question was was addressed to David just in terms of the Hamilton piece, but um, you know we we are running a process. We we believe that all the proceeds of the fraud and how that gets distributed will be better addressed under a form of curatorship via liquidation in South Africa, and hence the fact that that's what we apply for. So. The um, increase of the offer is, you know, slightly ironic because um, it's coated as being enabled by better than expected performance during COVID. But the reality is that the offer was constructed before COVID was even a thing. Um, so you know, it's a, you can you can kind of smile at that at that coat of paint that's that's put on it. Um, but for us, we, we believe that the best outcome here is actually to have a South African court address a South African crime and make sure that the proceeds of this fraud doesn't flow to various pockets where it can't be where it can't be put to good use again in the hands of those people that were defrauded. You know, whether you're a pensioner, whether you're us as entrepreneurs, whether you're the visa family with their extensive um, holdings in South Africa, all those people were the victims of, of this fraud. And we need to ask ourselves who are now the beneficiaries of the form. Just to dwell a little on the Visa family, they injected Pepco, uh, and it was a very strong business. And yet he's prepared to accept 30 cents in the rand for the business that he put in there, which seems strange. Why would that be? You know, I, I obviously can't speak on behalf of the Visa family, nor do I wish to. But I do think that Brahm and, and ourselves have accepted that this is going to be a long fight and we've got it in us. Um, and you look at Christo and his career and what he's built up here and what he's lost. And at the age of 80, I think it must be a very, it, it's a very difficult position to be in to see how you're going to play forward because this is a process that will still take years. So it's maybe a pragmatic approach from his side uh, because in many ways there's a parallel. He had a business. He was also uh, fooled and given uh, fraudulent uh, paper. In your case, you were right at the end of the, of the fraud. I mean, it, it, there can be no doubt. Maybe in his case there might still have been some doubt uh, about the extent of the fraud. In your case, clearly they were taking you uh, for a ride. But – there are those parallels. So I guess it is, it's, it's an obvious question, David Shapiro, on why Visa would accept and, uh, Mostert and Van Hastien wouldn't. 
Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I, I think uh, Bernard said you know, exactly that. He's old. He's 80. I mean, he can live for another 15, 20 years. Who knows? But, I mean, you've got to have a lot of fight in you to go through the processes of, you know, of, of appearing in court. And it's a long, long, drawn-out process. I, I, I tend to be on Bernard's side and saying, you know, this should be split up. I mean, I, I can't imagine what it's like to sell a business, you know, to sit around a boardroom table sell your incredible business to people sitting around there and be hoodwinked into exchanging good paper for bad. And then at this process that we're going to see now, not be able to actually reverse that or not have the courts reverse that. I think in financial markets, we always take risks. <laughs> Our risks are different as shareholders. It's uh, one expects it and you're, you're happy to just to write off the investments. But I mean, for people who actually run businesses, you know, who, who created something from nothing, I think uh, it's a totally different uh, approach. And, and, you know, Bernard's 100% right or entitled to get that back. Um, I don't give a damn for people in our market, for shareholders. I was, I was never a shareholder. You know, we didn't do the work. We could have seen the signs. They they were all there. No one took advantage of them. But I mean, for for people like, who sold businesses, um, it's a different approach. So um, I, you know, if you can find the technicality, and I was hoping, you know, this is what we're praying for, or or we're looking for, is that you know, if if the courts can find something to prevent this. Uh, offer being made to claimants and that that's the right way to go, which I thought Bernard had done. I thought they were able to to bring it to a halt. But obviously, uh, there's still a lot of hoops to jump through. Well, certainly some be, somebody believes not because if the share price went mm. up 11% oh. on Friday on a slightly higher offer to shareholders, then somebody believes that uh, it's going to go through. Bernard, uh, how would you dissuade them? Yeah, I think, you know, David's the expert here, so I'll defer to him. But I think that if you look at Steinoff, uh, volumes are very thin. And I would argue that that is not an indication of general market sentiment. I would also argue that, you know, if you see those thin volumes, it doesn't speak to real institutional power behind driving up that share price. Um, so, you know, I think, quite frankly, whomever is left in in dealing and Steinhoff now are merely speculative. Mm. So as far as you're concerned, there's no way that you're backing down. You are not going to be accepting the uh, higher offer that was put on the table on Friday. I think, to be perfectly honest, um, we haven't studied it, but I think I can give you that answer is that we, we're not going to accept it. And we're not going to accept it at various levels. I think, you know, it's a Again, a very philosophical point, but I think as South Africans, it would be completely the wrong thing for us to do to accept this offer. Because if you look at what would happen to it, and Steinhoff says that in the sense report that they would still have to get Reserve Bank approval for the expatriation of these funds for the increased offer. You see this the billions of rands being ripped out of South Africa and out of the South African economy, uh, flowing offshore, ostensibly mostly to settle... Um, and secure um, so-called financial creditors. I mean, the hedge funds and the vulture hedge funds that you, you and I discussed the last time we spoke. Um, and you ask yourself, you know, is that is that something that we want to participate in? Our kids going to look back one day and say, Dad, you know, what did you do when this 200 billion rand left our shores? David, it, it does appear to be a very deep disease that corporates have got where they will settle to get it off the table and carry on with life. In other words, your first knock's your best knock, and you've heard those sayings many, many times. Perhaps it is time for the whole future of capitalism to start being less pragmatic and more idealistic about these issues. Otherwise, you know, where does Adam Smith's morality undertone go to? Alec, I'll, I'll take it a step further, maybe just moving away from what you're saying. Go have a look at a annual general meetings. Go look at meetings. Nobody turns up there and questions the management. Why? Because we're all in passive investments. We're in ETFs. We're in hedge funds. We're not really uh, involved 
on a day-to-day basis. We're not, as, as Mr. Buffett would say, we're not partners. These, these chaps are not partners. They're just there for a, you know, for a quick punt. Bernard's a partner. <laughs> he's a, he's a, he was a partner. And I think that, that that's why his approach is so different. And I don't. I've, I've got no, uh, you know, vote for the hedge funds for all those other speculative vehicles, you know, that traded in the stock. And that's why I'm, you know, I feel Bernard's got a very, very strong case to get his business back, as other people as well. And and I would, you know, there's so many other businesses that were were taken down the same line, you know, in in some of the frauds that we've seen recently. And it's just sad that you could sit around a table with a person you trust sign on the basis of that, knowing they know it's a fraud. It's not that the fraud. This was a fraud from the time that they started the company. You got to think. You got to think similarly about EOH, for instance. They bought a lot of smaller businesses and paid them with Mm. with inflated paper. But Bernard, just Mm. getting back to what you mentioned at the outset of this conversation uh, when you referred to the developments in South Africa of the past week, how does this affect the way you're viewing this? I think the single biggest thing that we've seen in the last week is also something that we've we've, um, preached, for lack of a better word, for some time now. If there's no accountability and people believe that they can get away with things, then you've got this groundswell where people think it is acceptable. You know? So um, truth be told, if you look at and, and obviously our the parcel of businesses were affected by the, the looting in South Africa, if it was stopped on the Friday evening when it first stopped, I think that it would have been a fairly minor event. But by the Saturday and the Sunday, uh, the, the tide was so big that you just couldn't stop it. And as a result, I, I think quite a lot of it has to do with the fact that people were told that you will not get into trouble, you will not get prosecuted, etc. And I can only, you know, again, smile, um, and sadly so, tragically so, at an interview that was on ENCA a week ago with a spokesperson from the NPA where they said, what if you were somebody that were innocent in a store that just walked into that mall and now you get arrested? And he said, well, if you're not doing something about that, you were complicit and therefore you will be prosecuted. You know? So that's a, to me, that's the right message. That's the message that we should send. Um, and, and it's no different yet. So if we participate in a settlement now, and we don't get a chance to reinvest the money that we have made in South Africa, that we've invested in South Africa, to do that again. I do think it would be injustice. It would be an injustice, particularly to our families, but, but much greater so to South Africa. David Shapiro, on a Monday, we always have an opportunity to mm. talk about uh, events of the past week. How do we even start talking about the events since we last spoke? It's very difficult. I think it was an exhausting week. When I say exhausting, I I match it to watching 9-11, where those events unfolded in front of your eyes. Look, there were a lot more people, and it was a lot more tragic in terms of uh, loss of lives in in America. But, you know, you were compelled, and that, that, that viewing just took it out of you. You could not believe what you were seeing and I think when we saw mall after mall being mauled um, for for South Africans, um, it was a it was a week of shame. There was no moral compass. There was no shame. There was no uh, no sorrow in what the people were doing. And and I can't believe that even poor people um, don't have some kind of sense of what's right and wrong. Everybody there knew they were doing wrong, and uh, that that disturbed me. You know, that got to me. Um, if it's bread, if it's milk, if it's the basics of life, you know, I can understand people writing. But the way that this was done and the, the, the trucks coming and switches going, I, you know, the visions for the rest of the world just made us the laughing stock. And I think it's taken us down so far. It's going to be very hard for us to reverse this, you know, to get, to get our credibility back and to get people's belief up again. You know, anecdotally, I think um, it hurt a lot of people here as well. You know, I haven't heard 
uh, negative talk like this for a long time. You know, people just feel flattened. And I think they were also upset by, as Bernard said there earlier, you know, by the lack of response by government. If they would have acted early, we could have understood. But there was just, it was just allowed to go on with billions being lost. And it's going to take a long time to recover this. And, and the cues that we're seeing now, you know, just just crazy people queuing 10 hours just simply because there's no access points to get food. You know, there are very, very few things. So it's the markets have held up well, but markets are something else. You know, that's that's difficult to explain because our markets are not reflective of what's happening in Main Street. They're, uh, they're a different animal. Do they understand those people sitting in London and New York and uh, there's so much going on in the world right now? Do they understand the 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 tear in the fabric of the South African society, and I say that with with uh, with with all humility, because coming from KwaZulu Natal, having mm-hmm. deep deep uh, contacts there, lots of friends, family who have spent literally the last week mm-hmm. thinking, are they going to be attacked? So they were manning barriers. They were people of seventy, even older than that, uh, with with heavy. Uh, um, uh, weapons, uh, yeah. just waiting for the looters to decide to go into the suburbs. Now, once you've been through that experience, mm-hmm. it's unlikely that you'll ever see the world in the same way again. No, because you always expect that it's going to happen again. And uh, protecting your life is, is one thing. And it's very easy to be optimistic about something, but you've got to be optimistic for a reason. And I think this has done the opposite. People are very cautious. And, and uh, I was talking to a, a lady who works in my little team. She's in Peter Maritzburg. And believe me, they are in, they're living in fear. They're in, they're, yes, they're talking about the community that's come to their assistance because if, a, if a, um, someone's able to get bread, it's distributed. And that kind of sense does prevail. But their fear for their lives continues. And they're fearful that this can, uh, you know, happen again. And there's always talk about another hot point, you know, don't go there. We believe they're going to storm escort or so on. So this has not abated. This just continues. And from a foreign, you know, from the local point of view, from a stock market point of view, our markets split into different, you know, different kind of pockets. Um, and, and it's quite remarkable that the, the local pocket has held up, I say reasonably well. It's fallen. Property shares have fallen. Bank shares have fallen. Um, retailers, though, are not as badly hit as I thought. You know, the foreign side is different. Richemont has got nothing to do with South Africa or, or BHP and so on. And those shares will be reflect what's happening on other markets. But locally, I don't think there's been the sell-off that we thought would happen I don't know why, because to me, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of, you know, the cost is going to be enormous. I think when we, when we get down, you know, with, uh, um, with our calculators and we start actually um, calculating the amount, I think it's going to be big. It's massive. Mm. There might be a, a little misunderstanding as well. For decades, South Africans have been contributing to SASRIA, the mm. riot uh, risk. However, the latest annual report of SASRIA tells us they've got only 6 billion rand yeah. in assets. Now, you've got to wonder where the other tens of billions have gone mm. because over this period of time, there's been a heck of a lot more than 6 billion that should have been invested in that, uh, in that special riot fund. I mean, that goes, that predates, long mm. predates yeah. the 80s even. So, David, mm. That might be giving people a false sense of security. Well, it doesn't matter. We've got this right fund. We're going to get our money back. Uh, Jason McCormick, and I would urge you to to listen to that interview. They own shopping centers. He said the guys who came there, the MPs who, who, who were in the vanguard, took out the firefighting equipment. That was their first target. Of course, they were they were shooting at the security guys as well. But they took out the firefighting equipment so that when the looters could get there, they could burn down the the malls. Mm. And these are malls, Ladysmith, Newcastle, mm. where the, the mm. community, if they don't have those malls, they've got nowhere to go shopping. Mm. It was a very planned – I'm surprised that we aren't uh, – these stories, the mm. real on-the-ground mm. stories, are not being appreciated yet. I think Sir Maposa gets it, but uh, it seems mm. as though many pundits uh, are not – but getting back to Sastria 
uh, what Jason mm-hmm. said as well was that the the numbers that are being thrown around are massively understated from his own mm. business. I think they lost six, maybe seven shopping centers. They're probably going to be taking up a big chunk of that six mm. billion rand that's left in Sasria. Mm. What happens to the rest? Where do business owners get get reimbursed if there isn't uh, the, the fund that is available for them? Look, Mr. Price will be fine. <laughs> you know, those those groups will be fine because uh, it's in the shopping centre that they will rebuild their um, their outlets. So if the shopping centre is not there, they'll go somewhere else. So if you look at the retail groups, they're in a better position because all they have to do is restock there. And and I mean, it's quite a complicated issue with the landlords and uh, all the big groups. It's it's those property owners. It's the smaller businesses. That uh, um, that are going to suffer the most, not the big groups that are listed on the JSE, and I think that's the cost that we haven't accounted for. I looked at their balance sheet, Sasria, as well a couple of days ago as well. I I, I got to a point, and I'm not saying you're wrong. I, I saw about maybe eight or nine billion or something. Uh, yeah, like that. gross, but net is six. That, uh, that you yeah. did right. Mm. I know this is not this is not twenty billion. Mm. <laughs> this is not a thirty billion fund. They might have some reinsurance that they can claim on. But I, I think that uh, the initial statement that they made that they three times covered, forget about it. I, I just can't see it. And and this does not fall in, into the normal insurance, you know, uh, um, Suntime or any of the other big groups. So who's going to pay for this? I have no idea. This is going to go into multi-billions. And uh, I, I agree with you. I think the biggest losers are going to be the, the mall owners, you know, the shopping owners. And uh, for uh, just to repeat, you know, from, from uh, most of the Walmart, I'm oh, sorry, Mass Marts and that, uh, unless they own the property, it's, it's not a big deal to go and rebuild a shop or something like that. But where a, where a, where a whole center is being burnt down, Alec, I think this is going to be a very, very costly uh, rebuild. So, I, I don't know where we get the money from. If I hear you correctly, then you say the international investors are saying it's not such a big deal. We'll ride this out. We already put it into the risk premium for South Africa, whatever. For the locals, though, the impact mm-hmm. on top of COVID, on top of the, the, uh, mm-hmm. the reverse in the economy, and all the other factors that we know that are concerning within South Africa mm. might just tip some more skilled people mm. over the edge. Uh, I, I hear I, people saying, some people saying, we know these things that the immigration is, is mm. going to mm. uh, rocket mm. as a consequence. This is a Main Street affair. This is not, this is not a JSC story, not at all. This is, um, you know, this is really, and down down at the ground level, which is going to upset people, and there's no doubt the skills will go find you know go find something out already. I'm sure they're starting to phone up the the various embassies and make appointments. So it's it's another event like that, and I think it's those images that we saw last week that will tip people, and it's those people who are living in absolute fear in your part. You know the the uh, the Dun- where's it the Smiths yeah. in Newcastle, yeah. yeah. Crazy. It's, 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 it's absolutely tragic. Have you seen and, anything and, like and this it, before, Dave, in, in your life? No, and you've been no, around a long time? No. Forget about it. 1984 was nothing like this. 1976 was nothing like this. You know, and, and don't make those comparisons. You know, they, they were, they were uprisings in selected areas and burning and tire burning, et cetera, but not in an organized way like this. I've, I haven't seen anything in South Africa like this. So this is not, uh, you, know, the, you know, the events that came after Rubicon as well, they were far better controlled. Uh, they were confined to, you know, to, to kind of townships or, or various areas. So what happens this next? Was, what happens from here? The, what, what's from the upside? Give us, give us your high road. Okay. The upside, <laughs> the high road is that um, you can't put the same people who have taken us here and put them in charge to take us out of here. You know, that's, that's my biggest frustration. Is that um, 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 we we've got to make changes, and you've got to recognise that you know that changes have to be made, and these are not changes to invite Magashulu and Zuma back into government. These are complete opposite. Um, you've got to get a government that is business orientated. And Alec, I've said this on your show, and I think from the first time we started speaking many years ago. Um, 
I, we as, as a country, you've got to lay out the red carpet. And I'm quoting to an extent also Neil Froneman as well. But you can't invite people to come in and invest here with a rule book. Throw that rule book away. In other words, invite them in and say, what can we do for you to make a success of a business in South Africa? We've got all this labor. We've got all these young people. What can we do? What do we do normally because of political ideology and uh, all the other issues? We tell them exactly how they're going to transact business. And that takes them away. You know, um, you, you can't you can't tell them the rules. You've got to let them just carry on. Forget about until we've got growth to the levels that we wanted. Forget about political ideology. Just make sure that we you know, that that we're able to reestablish ourselves as an industrial force or even a mining force, whatever force, an economic force. So if, you can't do it with rules. If you want a South Africa that flourishes, where people can get jobs, where unemployment does not mm. decline, you need to get rid of the ideologues and bring in the pragmatists, would you say? It, it, absolutely. I, I always make a joke. I say you've got to put your pinstripe suit on with your laptop and march on Pretoria. You know, it's that kind of a coup. It's not a military coup. It's a business coup. And you've got to get pragmatic people at the top there to make this into an attractive uh, investment destination. And Bernard said it in the previous segment, you know, <laughs> there's, there, there is opportunity in this country. You know, there are a lot of people who, are, who, who want to see the success of this place. And there's plenty. We've got everything that you need. You know, you've got everything you need to make a successful business. But you just need to get the right, you know, the right people in charge. Charles Savage is the chief executive of Purple Group and better known as the man who created and runs Easy Equities. Uh, talking to one of your colleagues a little while ago, Charles, I realized that we hadn't congratulated you on getting your one million uh, clients within Easy Equities. That's been an incredible run. Um, it, it's, I suppose now you're going to head for the two million. Yeah, Alec, it's, thanks, man. Um, it feels like it's a big number and it feels great. Uh, it's, you know, if you're looking back at it, it's taken us six and a half years to get to a million customers and we'll get the next million in the next 12 months. So, you know, it's funny how these things, uh, it, it happens slowly and then suddenly it happens very fast. So, yeah, thanks very much. But the reason I asked you to come and talk to us today, and we will pick up a little bit more on uh, on Purple and, and Easy later, but uh, we have had a number of the business community members saying, okay, now I've invested the money into Easy Equities, into uh, offshore investments, into Australia and uh, and into the United States. However, after the anarchy of last week, I'm wondering how safe those investments are. Yeah, look, it's a good question. Um, to be honest, it's, I'd be asking the same. So I think, you know, good question from the listeners. You know, fundamentally, our offshore business is exactly that. It's 100% offshore. So, you know, the, the fact that we're a South African business providing access to international assets doesn't make it riskier for those international assets. So our clearing and custody and the brokerages through which we trade are all offshore. So they've got absolutely no risk to South Africa at all. Uh, and in fact, you know, if this kind of unrest continues, then I think our business will benefit because obviously you're just going to see a flight of capital from South Africa to offshore markets. And it presents zero risk, the fact that we're a South African institution. So just unpack that for us. If anarchy were to get to a, a ridiculous level and it's no longer uh, just a theoretical question, it's, it's a, a practical question in many people's minds. And you, they, they decide to to depart the country and to to go elsewhere. Will they still access, have access, and how to the money that they've invested with Easy Equities into the US and uh, and Australia? Yeah, I mean, you know, as I think you know, Alec, the business is entirely virtual and online, and there's no gatekeepers. You know, it's not like you have to walk into office in Santon to unlock your funds and get access to the safe. So it, it's all of the same uh, procedures and processes that they use now, i.e. they would log on online. They would, you know, they'd probably want to change their banking details because potentially let's just say that they didn't want the cash to come back to their South African bank account and then wanted to move to an offshore bank account. 
So they would have to go through a verification process to change their banking details. And then, you know, to the extent that they wanted to withdraw their funds, they would give us the instruction, we would verify the bank, and the money would flow to those to that bank account. So nothing changes. Um, you know, I think the risk is is not to your online assets. The risk is or to your, let's call them virtual assets, because you know, everything in the stock trading world has been demutualized. Um, so the risk is your physical assets, you know, your title deeds to your property in South Africa and your, you know, your your assets that you store in a bank vault in South Africa. Those are the real, those are the assets that are at risk. These, and I don't like to use the word virtual assets for things like shares, but essentially stock ownership has been virtualized. All of it is, you know, the, the registries are all online, the custody and clearing and settlement is all online. So, you know, it's as secure as anything else. And it doesn't matter just because we're a South African registered business doesn't make any difference to the security of those assets. Have you seen that there has been a increase in demand? I know it's very early days uh, in the last week, but a lot of people, certainly from the feedback we are getting, uh, were shocked by what has happened, the unthinkable happening in their own country, and now would want to externalize if possible. Yeah, it's 100% it has. I mean, the demand just ticked up overnight. Um, lots of customers who hadn't thought about a U.S. stockbroking account suddenly thinking about it, wanting to understand how to open and what they need to do. Um, you know, I think we're all all a little bit dears in the headlights for the last seven days. Certainly, that's how I felt about it. I think you know we started to unpack or started to uh, understand what's happened. Uh, not really understand it, but I think get a glimpse of of what may have occurred. Uh, and I think as certainty around the events unfold, you're either going to see uh, resilient capital uh, staying and, and backing, you know, government and the political framework, or alternatively, I think you're going to see South Africans take their capital and move them offshore. But certainly, we saw an immediate increase in requests to say, okay, so I've got a South African account, what do I need to do to get my US account set up? So sadly, you know, that's capital is, is bound, it's, you know, there are no boundaries on capital anymore. And we even exchange control, the, the hurdles are so low or so high that the average user uh, doesn't apply. So, yeah, I think our users are going to be watching very closely. Um, you know, the RAND is telling a little bit of a different story. I, I ended up having coffee on, on Saturday with uh, one of the senior guys at a large bank, head of securities, a large bank. And it was interesting. He was saying that international capital we're not, we're not phased by this at all. You know, he, in fact, his comment was, we price this kind of, these kind of events into investing in South Africa. Uh, and sure, we're going to sit, we're going to sit on our hands a little and just watch how it unfolds. But frankly, this is part of our investment thesis in case. And, you know, we think the response so far has been good. And this isn't a coup and this isn't anarchy and the government is taking steps to resolve it. And we're, you know, might you see the weakness as an opportunity to invest more? So it's interesting how people see it from other sides. You know, here in South Africa, we do get Stockholm syndrome. We see it for what it is. And, you know, our reference and context is what was it like yesterday? And, you know, mm. it's been getting worse for a long time now. But international have priced this kind of risk in. So it's interesting to see how this is going to unpack. But certainly retail investors are saying, I need to be ready if anything, uh, if anything continues to happen just to close off with i'd like to go back to something you said earlier that this past week has has made you kind of reassess where you are as a south african um and the worst week i think you said in your life mm. what do you what are you in your reflections what are you actually making of all of this and the way ahead yeah she's alec i come i also a bit of a deer in the headlights still but you know the first the, the first part of last week um yeah, sh shook me because I've, I've actually set lines in the sand around South Africa about where the country has to be for me to stay. And it was like, we didn't just walk over the line. We just, we jumped over it and then carried on running past it. So I really, and I, I, I it is quite personal, but I'll share it just to contextualize. I got a WhatsApp from my 11 year old daughter at 10 o'clock at night on Tuesday to say she was scared. And, you know, is she safe and shouldn't we go somewhere for a while? That was, you know, now, that shook me to my core. And then by Friday, there were signs that we were going to stand together. You know, 
uh, from every age group, every race group. We're going to stand together and defend the country because it's greater. We can't let the 1% percent crowd us out. And, you know, maybe it's not 1% that are, are it is, maybe it's 2 or 3%, but I think the thing that gives me the real context to stay and to fight for a better South Africa is that we are the majority, those who want to stand together, protect the industry, protect our neighborhoods, protect our families and friends. We're standing shoulder to shoulder, and I think we're going to drive off this insurgency and be stronger for it. And the thing that I'm really looking for, which, you know, I think Cyril in his second speech last week was way better than in his first, there needs to be, if you like, dictatorial democracy. It's You need a leader that is that emerges that gives us the strength to believe that the future is going to be different and they and they will be judged on their actions not their words and the platform is set for that and Cyril's the guy you know he has to he has to take almost he's got to take control and he's got to take action and if he does I think the support he'll get now will be incredible because we all want it we all are looking for that leadership that someone to believe in again and I think the platform's set and I think what what Cyril has seen is that he's got there are more people on his side than are against him. You know, he would have been concerned that this could have been his end as well. So, you know, I'm I'm a passionate stayer, um, but I, I have to reassess where my lines in the sand sit now and what are the flags that I'm going to watch. And I think the key flag for me is action out of government. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not interested in words. I'm not turning on another Cyril Ramaphosa speech. I want to read the headlines. I want people in jail. I want to see them prosecuted. Uh, and if I see that, then I'm, you know, I'm firmly going to st- stick around and convince other people to do the same. In the early years of my career, I used to cover something called guilts and semi-guilts. And what it was all about was the government lending and the cities in South Africa that would go into the international community and the local ones and borrow money to invest in infrastructure projects. Now, over the years, the cities have been rated differently by credit rating agencies. And at the moment, if you have a look, particularly in the uh, events of the past week, you, you'd think that the r- rating differences would be vast. Well, they aren't really that much. And we're talking now with the executive deputy mayor of Cape Town, Ian Nielsen, who I suppose, Ian, would be a little surprised by the fact that we saw the unrest in KwaZulu-Natal and in uh, parts of Gauteng. And you can understand why the ratings agencies would downgrade the cities there because it, it, uh, the risk has certainly increased. But your city, Cape Town, hasn't had any impact whatsoever of the looting and the rioting and uh, what appears to have been something initiated by rural Zulus who have uh, gone through. We can get into that subject on another day. But I'd, I'd just like to get the impression from your side. Are you in Cape Town attempting to differentiate yourselves now from cities elsewhere in South Africa? Well, we're not uh, actively trying to differentiate ourselves in the sense of uh, wanting to be different. But, uh, you know, we are different, if I can put it that way, because uh, if we look at our performance, uh, financially particularly, uh, it is completely different to other municipalities. Uh, so, I mean, we've been a bit surprised by uh, this, uh, this uh, downgrade this weekend by Moody's because it's just a month ago that they gave us a credit rating where they confirmed our, our previous rating uh, and said we were in a strong position, etc. Um, and so this time it seems they've just decided to go countrywide and downgrade all the metros uh, on the same basis, on a broad basis, that uh, only, you know, that there's been a drop in collection rates across the country during this COVID period. Uh, they say around 10%. But that's simply not our uh, experience. We we have, in fact, increased our uh, collection rate in the past year. We were previously sitting around 95% collection. We're now sitting at over 98% collection. Um, and we are sitting with uh, significant funds in the bank. Uh, you know, so there's, in our view, uh, our finances are in a very strong position. Our budget is strong. We're able to to deliver on our budget and on, on our plans. 
and so we don't perceive that there's any any merit uh, in this, this downgrade. What is the difference at the moment between the ratings of Cape Town and the other major metros in South Africa? Well, uh, you know, it seems that Cape Town, uh, Johannesburg are on a bit on one level. Um, you know, we we have essentially been capped by the national rating. So we find that the way that the rating agencies go around rating us is they weighted 60% based on what the national uh, position is. Uh, and if, if the, uh, the national position is in a poor position, they will not rate us any higher than that. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, so uh, that's perhaps understandable. Uh, because they see that that national is the last resort, uh, although in practice we've never seen the national government as the last resort for Cape Town's finances. Um, so, uh, you know, other municipalities, Chwane, uh, Orchabello, others are, are, are very much lower. It's so interesting now because we're seeing a differentiation between the governance of the Western Cape and elsewhere or most other parts of the country. And that, that penny has now dropped in a very big way. And yet, from what you've told us, the international ratings agencies are not yet aligned with that kind of reality. Why would this be? Do they, do they visit with you? Do they actually understand South Africa? Well, certainly they do visit with us. And so normally we do have a full evaluation, and that's the evaluation we received a month ago, uh, where our, our credit rating was confirmed. Uh, but this this one that was carried out this weekend sim- simply seems to have been done on some broad basis without proper evaluation of each municipality individually. So that's something that we are questioning them uh, at this stage to understand their thinking on this matter. Uh, because we are we are certainly not happy with that approach, um, so uh, we will continue to engage them. Obviously, in the end, uh, we we can't tell them what what to do, um, but you know we just we can highlight, I believe, the fact that that Cape Town is uh, in a very strong financial position. We, in fact, uh, do not need to go to market at this point to to borrow funds. Uh, we uh, the earliest time we would need to do that would probably be around June next year. Uh, so I think there's a long time for us to deal with this matter, but we are more concerned about the reputational damage that we would get uh, with this uh, uh, this downgrading. So if you don't need to borrow, why is the rating that relevant? Well, there, there is a sense that uh, we need to, on a constant basis, uh, have ourselves rated. Uh, there's expectation from national government that all metros do it, um, that you do have a second opinion, as it were, compared to what you get from, say, the Auditor General or other state uh, um, functions, that you get an uh, independent view on that matter. Uh so uh, it is not the only rating we get. There's an organization, Ratings Africa, which does a different type of rating. It's not, uh, it's not based towards borrowings, uh, but looks far more broadly at uh, the financial positions of the city. And we found that to be far more useful um, in terms of uh, understanding our own uh, position and how we are performing. So why would it be that your finances are in such a good state and elsewhere in the country, the cities, not so much? Well, you know, it's good governance. That, that is what it comes down to in the end. We, we have applied consistently good governance over the past 15 years since the DA took over management of, of the city. Um, and in that period... Uh, we have ensured that uh, we, every year the, the finances are, uh, are well managed, that we collect uh, the, uh, the billing, we do good billing, we uh, collect the money, we ensure that, uh, that on our expenditure side we keep it within, within the budget limits, 
Uh, in fact, we drive savings where we can. Um, and in fact, that's why uh, many years we end up with a, a surplus, even though we we actually budgeted for a for a balanced budget. Um, it's because we drive savings as well. So all of this uh, puts us in a position to have a strong um, uh, balance sheet, uh, to have cash in the bank. Uh, and if you look also at our, our property rates, for example, we have the lowest cent in the rand of all the metros in the country. You know, we're sitting at about 0.6 cents in the rand for residential properties. The next uh, metro is Johannesburg with 0.8 cents and all the others sitting above one cent in the rand. Uh, and it's even more dramatic as far as commercial rates are concerned because we, again, we sit with a commercial rate of 1.2 cents in the rand, uh, Johannesburg and others two cents and above. Uh, so it is significantly different. And it's because uh, we have strong and good uh, good governance, uh, good financial management, and we do that uh, consistently and have done so over a period of time. This Currency Focus is proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. Andre Celia is with Treasury One. Yo, what a week we've had, Andre. Uh, and in your end of the world, in currency markets, I don't know if you've ever seen anything like this be- before, but having a word with David Shapiro a little earlier, he said, and he's very old, <laughs> he said in his, his, in his lifetime, he never expected to see what he has seen in the past week. How did the currency markets react? Very immediate, but that's typical with markets. It's very, very immediate. Um, and we could see very immediately uh, on the reaction of the RAND how much it weakened. Um, but that was not the biggest weakening that I've seen in my history. Having been around in 1985, um, when Mr. P.W. Bota had the Rubicon speech, and we were closed down for two days, and that's where the debt standstill was announced, uh, and the rescheduling of South African debt, uh, the turmoil then was much bigger than it was uh, this period. Uh, if we look at the move when uh, Mr. Zuma announced the appointment of uh, Mr. Des van Rooyen as the new Minister of Finance, the immediate reaction was also bigger. We should not forget that that was where we traded in the 14s uh, or the 13s, lower 14s, and we jumped up as high as 16. Um, before that decision was reversed and Mr. uh, Praveen Gordon was appointed. So, no, uh, yes, it was turmoil, yes, it was chaotic, uh, but it was not the worst that the markets had seen. And that's that's the thing that's surprising so many people. On the ground, this is unprecedented. And yet in the financial markets, and in particular with Iran, where it should have been reflected, it hasn't been. So what is it telling us? This is telling us that the uh, RAND as a barometer of what happens in South Africa is very important and that it reacts very quickly and that we need to get our house in order and to get rid of these uh, quick, dirty events that influences so much and then damages our investor confidence uh, on a long-term basis. You know, the event takes place... Uh, for three days, uh, the consequences stays with us for years and years thereafter. We are now seeing that Toyota issued a letter uh, delivered to the uh, mayor of uh, Durban City, Itikwini, um, received that letter where they expressed the concern about what happens in KwaZulu Natal and specifically in the Durban area. Um, and what, how damaging that is for companies uh, and the prospects of company, companies, and how they start doubting whether they should put any investment into the country. But that spills over and it's got long-term effects, and that's what we need to get right in this country. We cannot afford this. Uh, our growth figures cannot afford it. Our currency cannot support these kind of moves, and we need to get our house in order and get rid of it. But why is the currency so strong? Why has it... Not You can't say it shrugged it off because it, it went down a little. 
But you would have imagined that where you have a situation of attempted sedition, where there have been MPs attacking shopping centres, shooting out the, the firefighting equipment first so that they can burn the shopping centres after the looting, where you have 220 people who have been murdered as a consequence of this, where you have a president who is saying that this is a plot uh, and many people who have insights say, yes, it is an attempted coup d'etat. And yet the RAND continues to go as relatively strongly. Uh, these are, are mysterious times and I suppose mysterious uh, or, or bemused um, citizens who, who are looking at it and wondering, uh, what is it that is going to finally make the penny drop internationally, if not locally? Well, I think the penny is starting to drop internationally. Uh, if we look at the investment and, and fixed direct investment into South Africa over the last number of months, last couple of years, uh, it tells us that we are not one of the emerging markets that attracts the, the, the most money. Uh, we actually uh, are a little bit behind the averages. Uh, and if we look at our figures that came in in previous years compared to what comes in now, um, and then the investor community is already telling us uh, what they think. Well, thanks for joining us. Until the next time from the Biz News team, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.